Peter's second epistle serves as a warning about antinomianism and apostasy. He established that growing in godliness is our chief defense against these dangers. In 2 Peter 1, 1 1-4, Peter outlined four provisions that God has given us for godliness. Faith, grace and peace, everything pertaining to life and godliness, and precious and magnificent promises. Then in 2 Peter 1, 5-11, he provides seven virtues by which we can know if we are growing in godliness. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Now in 2 Peter 1, 12-21, Peter provides two tools for growth in godliness, the New Testament and the Old Testament. These tools will not only enable us to grow in godliness, but they serve as an antidote against false teachers and false teaching. And those of us who avail ourselves of both sides of the Holy Writ will neither be stunted in our spiritual growth, nor will we fall victim to damnable heresies. And so as we come to chapter 1, verses 12 to 21, it's very simple. We're going to look at verses 12 to 18 and see the New Testament revelation. And then in verses 19 to 21, we're going to see the Old Testament revelation. We're going to see what Paul, or excuse me, what Peter has to say about these two tools and how they apply to our growth in godliness. Now, as we look at the New Testament revelation in verses 12 to 18, Peter divides it into two sections. First, he's going to deal with the epistles. And then secondly, he's going to deal with the gospels. So let's look at the New Testament revelation, verses 12 to 18. Specifically, let's look at the epistles as Peter deals with those in chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. He begins by stating, therefore. He connects back to his previous statements about the virtues that are to be evident in our lives as we're growing. Because we are growing in godliness, Peter states that he will always be ready to remind us of these things. Now the term always means at all times and on every occasion. The verb be ready denotes intention or will and implies divine appointment. To remind means to cause us to think about something again. Thus, Peter is to cause us to think about these things again. He has been divinely appointed to do this work at all time and on every occasion. The question then is, do these things refer back to the seven virtues or something else? Peter states that his readers already know them and have been established in the truth. Now, several terms in that phrase provide the answer to the question. First, consider the verb know. To know means to perceive and comprehend knowledge. Previously, Peter has spoken twice about knowledge. In verses 2 and 3, Peter referred to knowledge, epigenosis, which means to understand the gospel so clearly and distinctly that it informs and influences one's life to the point of conversion. 
In verse 5, he refers to another knowledge, gnosis, that relates to learning and reasoning the truths of Scripture in a manner that influences and informs one's ethic. Second, Peter states that we have been established in the truth. The truth refers to the revelation of God's existence and will, i.e., the Scriptures. The verb have been established means to make someone determined or resolute. In 1 Peter 5, 9, and 10, Peter used the same term, sterizo, and its cognate term, stereos, to depict the rock-like determination or resolution that we must have for biblical doctrine as found in the Scriptures. That God established or confirmed us in biblical doctrine indicates that He has revealed His doctrines to us. And God revealed these truths via the New Testament epistles, which are foundational to building our theology and ethics. Therefore, in verse 12, these things refers to the doctrines of Scripture taught by Peter and the apostles in their epistles. Furthermore, in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, after repenting of his denial, Christ commissioned Peter to strengthen his brothers. That is, Peter was to establish or conform his fellow believers in the faith. This has been Peter's life mission. The phrase, I consider it right, in verse 13, means to reckon something equitable or just. This earthly dwelling, skenoma, refers to his physical body's temporary nature. Reminds us of 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. The Greek term skenoma and its cognates are often translated as tent or tabernacle. Consider Acts 7.44. Our fathers had the tabernacle, skene, of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. Hence, Peter reckons that it is equitable spending his life to stir us up by way of reminder. And that reminder is the epistles. The verb to stir up means to spur us to action. And how Peter stimulates us to growth in godliness comes by way of reminder. The reminder refers to the epistles of Peter and the apostles, which contain doctrinal knowledge, which will inform and influence us in our growth in godliness. And the urgency of spurring us to grow in godliness through the epistles is underscored by verse 14. Peter states that the laying aside of his earthly dwelling is imminent. In other words, even as he writes this epistle, his death is approaching. And Peter knew of his death's imminence and nature as prophesied by Christ. John 21, 18 and 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And so what we see there in that prophecy is that, first of all, Peter was going to grow old, but when he was old, he would be led where he did not want to go. His arms would be stretched out, and he would be killed. 
It's talking about the martyrdom of Peter. And we know historically that Peter died a martyr's death by having his arms stretched out on a cross and hung upside down to die. Because of his approaching death, Peter was diligent with the task of writing this epistle. The verb be diligent is to undertake a task with excitement, eagerness, and earnestness. Peter wrote this second epistle excitedly, eagerly, and earnestly so that we would be able to call these things to mind after his departure. Again, these things refers to the doctrines of Scripture. Now, it's noteworthy that Peter uses a unique word for his death. Instead of the usual Greek term for death, nekros, he uses the Greek term exodus or exodus. This term is only found in two other places in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.22 and Luke 9.31. Hebrews 11.22, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. And then Luke 9.31, who appearing in glory when speaking of his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The Luke 9.31 passage is crucial because it describes the transfiguration of Jesus. In the context of the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus of his impending death or exodus. What makes this even more unique is that Peter described his physical body as a skenoma or a tabernacle, which is also used in Luke's version of the transfiguration account, Luke 9.33. As they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, skene, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. Together, these two terms depict our entrance into the eternal kingdom. When we exodus this life, we leave behind our earthly tabernacle and we enter into the heavenly temple of Christ's eternal kingdom. And so Peter establishes the fact that he, he, he was commissioned to write these epistles, to pass on these doctrinal truths, so that even after his death, we might still have them, and we can still turn to the epistles for everything we need for faith and life. Now, he also, in beginning of verse 16, deals with the Gospels. The Gospels. Verse 16 to 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Having established the purpose of the epistles to communicate knowledge of biblical doctrine for growth and godliness, Peter now turns his attention to the knowledge of the Gospels. Again, remember, he's talking about we need what we need to know. And that we saw two kinds of knowledge earlier in first Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1. When there's a knowledge of the Gospels and there's a knowledge of the Scripture. Now we're dealing with the Gospels. Already, Peter has laid the foundation for this knowledge by referencing the transfiguration. And while we accept the fact that Peter authored two epistles, perhaps you may not know that he authored a gospel account. Peter's gospel account bears the name Mark. Mark was one of Peter's amanuenses, or scribes. As such, 
Mark not only penned the gospel under Peter's guidance, but he also acted as the courier of the gospel to the churches. And as the courier, he was responsible for reading and explaining the text to its recipients. To this end, Eusebius, historian of the early church, recorded information about the gospel of Mark that had been revealed to Papias by the apostle John. Accordingly, he recorded that John stated, quote, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not indeed in order, whatsoever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterwards, as I said, he followed Peter, who adapted his teaching to the needs of his hearer, but with no intention of giving a connected account of the Lord's discourses, so that Mark committed no error while he thus wrote some things as he remembered them. For he was careful of one thing, not to omit any of these things which he had heard, and not to state any of them falsely. Now again, Peter has previously mentioned knowledge in verse 2, 3, and 5. The knowledge, gnosis, in verse 5, is related to learning and reasoning the truths of Scripture. That's found in the epistles. The knowledge, epigenosis, in verse 2 and 3, refers to understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is nowhere better related than in the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Whereas the Old Testament prophesies of the gospel and the New Testament epistles apply the gospel to daily living, it is in the gospels that we receive eyewitness testimony of the very events of the gospel message, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter states in verse 16 that his knowledge was experiential. That is, he and others were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The term eyewitness is one who was a close observer of the original event or events. The others to which Peter refers, who were eyewitnesses, is specifically a reference to James and John, but in a larger sense includes all the apostles. Both Peter and John authored Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew, who himself was an eyewitness of what he wrote. The only Gospel account written by someone who is not a direct witness of the life, death, burial, and resurrection was Luke. However, Luke's Gospel account should not be rejected or considered dubious. Consider Luke's own words in Luke 1, 1-4. He states, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Notice that Luke recorded his gospel from the very ones who were what? Eyewitnesses. The those eyewitnesses included Peter, James, and John. As well, consider Luke's purpose in writing to Theophilus so that he might know the exact truth. The verb know, epigonosco, is the verbal form of knowledge, epigenosis, which means to understand the gospel so clearly and distinctly that it informs and influences one to the point of conversion. Peter authored his gospel, along with Mark, 
so that the very saints to whom he was writing this epistle would be informed of and influenced by Christ's salvific work and come to saving faith. That he is now writing to saints demonstrates that his gospel did its work. It must be underscored that the epistles have no bearing on an individual's growth in godliness if those same ones have never heard and received the gospel. You must first be informed and influenced by the gospel before you can be informed and influenced by the epistles. Now Peter wants us to know that the gospel can be trusted because they did not follow cleverly devised tales. The word tales, muthos, is the term from which mythology is derived. Understanding the original recipients of this letter to be Jewish believers, these tales refer to Jewish myths, Titus 1.14. Not paying attention to Jewish myths, muthos, and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. Now, these Jewish myths are referenced to the Mishnaic legends as recorded in Talmud. Instead of legends, Peter and the other gospel writers made known three specific truths about Jesus, namely his power, his coming, and his majesty. You can break the gospels up into three, under three headings. They reveal his power, they reveal his coming, they reveal his majesty. Now notice the verb made known, we made known these things to you, is gonorizo, and it references a teacher who reveals divine information. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Gonorizo. So Christ was giving them knowledge. Knowledge of what? His power, his coming, his majesty. Now the power, do not miss, refers to the ability to perform miracles. Mark 6, 2. What is this wisdom given to him and such miracles, dunamis, as these performed by his hands? Acts 10.38 You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with dunamis, with power, with miracles. Now there are 37 miracles performed by Christ recorded in the Gospels. Here they are in chronological order. He begins by turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Heals an official son at Capernaum of Galilee. Cast out an evil spirit from a man in Capernaum. Heals Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with fever. Heals many sick and oppressed at evening. There's a miraculous catch of fish on the lake of Gennesaret. Cleanses a man with leprosy. Heals a centurion's paralyzed servant in Capernaum. Heals a paralytic who was let down from the roof. Heals a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. Raises a widow's son from the dead in name. Causes a storm or calms a storm on the sea. Casts demons into a herd of pigs. Heals a woman with an issue of blood. Raises Jairus' daughter back to life. Heals two blind men. Heals a man who is unable to speak. Heals an invalid at Bethesda. Feeds 5,000 plus women and children. Walks on water. Heals many sick at Gennesaret. Heals a Gentile woman of demons. Yeah. 
heals a Gentile woman's demon-possessed daughter, heals a deaf and dumb man, feeds 4,000 plus women and children, heals a blind man at Bethesda, heals a man born blind by spitting in his eyes, heals a boy with an unclean spirit, miraculous temple tax in a fish's mouth, heals a blind mute demoniac, heals a woman who had been crippled for 18 years, heals a man with dropsy on the Sabbath, cleanses 10 lepers on the way to Jerusalem, raises Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, restores sight to Bartimaeus in Jericho, withers the fig tree on the road from Bethany, heals a servant's severed ear while being arrested, and then uh, performs a miraculous catch of fish at the Sea of Tiberias. Thirty-seven different miracles recorded in the Gospels. Now the coming, parousia, refers to Christ's second advent, his return as king. And of course the key text on this is found in Matthew 24 to 25, but it's also referenced in all four Gospels. But Matthew 24 verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will all these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming, your parousia, and of the end of the age? And then his majesty, a term for glory associated with God, megalites. In this case, majesty refers to the Shekinah glory. Luke 9, 43, they were all amazed at the greatness, the megalates of God. Now the term Shekinah, Shakain refers or means to dwell or tabernacle and describes God's presence dwelling or tabernacling in a particular locale manifested as visible light. The Shekinah glory led the Israelites through the wilderness, Exodus 13.21. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light so they might travel by day and by night. Now no one has seen the Father at any time indicating that any manifestation of the Shekinah in the Old Testament was a pre-incarnate Christ, John 6.46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Hebrews 11.3, And he, that's Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. That Christ is the radiance of his glory and the Father's exact representation underscores both the Father and Son manifest the Shekinah glory. Understanding that Christ is the Shekinah or the dwelling of God's presence in a locale sheds light on John 1.14. The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt, tabernacled among us. Now along with James and John, Peter saw the majesty or Shekinah glory of Christ at the transfiguration. Peter states that at the transfiguration, Jesus received honor and glory. And that phrase, honor and glory, is an allusion to Psalm 8.5. Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you, yet you crown him with glory and majesty or honor. That Psalm, Psalm 8.5, is a prophecy of Christ's incarnation and glorification. You see, when Christ took on human nature and flesh, he divested himself of certain privileges such as his honor and glory. Paul refers to this act as self-emptying in Philippians 2.7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. Honor refers to the worship God receives. Glory is the outward manifestation of the Shekinah. 
Divesting himself of these privileges does not mean that Christ lost them, but instead temporarily set them aside or veiled them, so that when people saw Christ, they did not see a being to worship or the radiance of his glory. Instead, they saw a common, ordinary man. Isaiah 53, 2. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. When Christ was resurrected from the dead, the Father restored the manifestation of his honor and glory. Yet Peter, James, and John saw Christ's honor and glory, the hour display of his glory, on the holy mountain. That mountain was Mount Hermon, the highest mountain in the region of Judea. Before the events of that evening, Mount Hermon was an ordinary mountain. After the Messiah's glory was revealed there, the mountain became holy or sacred as well. They heard this utterance made from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. When the Father made this utterance, he combined two Old Testament prophecies. Psalm 2-7, which states, You are my son, today I have begotten you. I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And Isaiah 42-1, which states, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. By joining these two texts, the Father reveals to us that his son is both king and the suffering servant. These two aspects of his messiahship define his two advents. Christ came first as the suffering servant. He is going to come again, though, as the victorious king. Now, Peter states that these utterances were made to him, made to Christ, by the majestic glory. The term utterance, phone, we get the term phone from that, refers to a distinct voice. That voice belonged to none other than the one whose name is Majestic Glory, Megaloprepes Doxa. This title applied to God can be understood to mean that God is the one who is glorious above all others. And thus Jesus' deity was authenticated by the, to the apostles by what they saw, the Shekinah glory, and what they heard, the voice of God the Father. And all that they heard and all that they saw, they wrote down in the Gospels. And as John says, they didn't write everything down. Because Jesus did so much that all the books in all the world could not contain them. The New Testament revelation is a reliable tool for us. Because it points us to the Gospel. It gives us knowledge of the Gospel that leads to conversion. And then the epistles Give us the knowledge of Scripture, the knowledge of doctrine that we need to form our ethic. In other words, how we're to behave, how we're to act. Now, there's a second tool. There is another called the Old Testament revelation. So we have the New Testament revelation. Now we have the Old Testament revelation beginning in verse 19 to 21. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The second tool for growth and godliness is the Old Testament. For those who do not hold the Old Testament in as high esteem as the New Testament, Peter's words may come to you as a surprise. 
He refers to the Old Testament as the prophetic word made more sure. That term more sure, babaios, means reliable, abiding, and in force. Peter's point is twofold, Christian. First, the written word of the Old Testament is more reliable than what he's just said. It's more reliable than his eyewitness account. And second, the Old Testament is still in force. Contrary to popular opinion, Christ did not set aside the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus himself said that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Do not think, Matthew 5, 17 to 18, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now the term abolish means to completely invalidate something which has been in force. Jesus said he did not come to make the law or the prophets, i.e. the Old Testament, invalid. Instead, he came to fulfill them. Laonida's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament states that fulfill means to give the true or complete meaning to something, to give the true meaning to, to provide the real significance of. Strong's Concordance further clarifies this definition. It states that fulfill means to cause God's will, as made known in the law, to be obeyed as it should be, and God's promises given through the prophets to receive fulfillment. See, Jesus reveals the true meaning and real significance of the Old Testament as demonstrated in the phrase, You have heard, but I say to you. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable in the court. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This phrase does not mean that Jesus was changing the Old Testament. Instead, as John MacArthur states, quote, He is simply restating God's original intention because the rabbis had so perverted the Old Testament that he had to raise the standard back up to where God put it in the first place. And Jesus' application of the Old Testament demonstrates that it still applies to one's personal motivations and attitudes. And not only is the Old Testament still in force, but Peter goes on to say that we would do well to pay attention to it. The verb to pay attention, prosecco, means to apply one's mind to the Old Testament. We are to apply our minds to the Old Testament by studying it, believing it, and obeying it. And therefore the Old Testament is a valuable tool to our growth in godliness as is the New Testament. You and I cannot grow without it. You see, understanding the Old Testament is critical to understanding the New Testament. Think of it this way. If the New Testament is a nail, the Old Testament is that hammer that drives home the point. See, my friends, your use of the Old Testament is comparative as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, that's an allusion to Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And to Proverbs 6, 23. The commandment is a lamp and, a, and the teaching is light. See, we are surrounded by the spiritual darkness of sin and rebellion. And the Old Testament is a light that dispels the darkness and reveals sin and rebellion for what it is. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 11. Now these things happened as examples for us. 
that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now these things happened to them as example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. Now believer, we are to continue using the Old Testament, Peter says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now in Peter's second epistle, the term day typically references a future period. The day of judgment, 2 Peter 2, 9 and 3, 7. The day of the Lord, 2 Peter 3.10. The day of God, 2 Peter 3.12. And the day of eternity, 2 Peter 3.18. The prophetical use of the term day depicts a period that, like an actual biblical day, begins at sunset, continues with night, sunrise, and daytime, and ends at the next evening or sunset. The day of the Lord begins when the rapture of the church and ends with the renewed heavens and earth. The rapture coincides with sunset. Tribulation coincides with the night. The return of Christ coincides with the sunrise. The millennial kingdom coincides with the day. And the renewed heavens and earth coincide with the sunset. The day of judgment focuses on that period that begins with the wicked's resurrection, moves on to the great white throne judgment, and ends with the wicked cast in the lake of fire. The day of God, or the day of eternity, begins with the renovation of the heaven and earth, continues with the renewing of heaven and earth, and ends with the merging of Christ's kingdom with God's kingdom for all eternity. Now, the phrase, the morning star rises, is critical in determining which of these days Peter refers to in verse 19. In the Greco-Roman culture, the morning star, Phosphoros, was the name applied to Venus, sometimes Jupiter, Mars, Mercury, or Saturn, when they appear west of the sun before the latter's rising. Balaam prophesied that a star shall come forth from Jacob, Numbers 24, 17. Christ states in Revelation twenty two sixteen, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That Christ is the morning star parallels the fact that his return prophetically parallels the sunrise event in the day of the Lord. When the ancients saw the morning star, they knew that the sun would rise and dispel the darkness of night. And when Christ returns, he is going to arise out of the darkness of the tribulation as the morning star. His appearance is going to signal the end of Satan's kingdom of darkness and the establishment of his kingdom of light. And hence the day to which Peter refers to is the day of the Lord. See then, believer, we are to read and heed the Old Testament until the day of the Lord specifically until the day dawns. Now, the day of the Lord begins with sunset, or the church's rapture. That intimates that we are to be availing ourselves of the Old Testament beyond that event. The dawn of the day of the Lord occurs at sunrise, otherwise known as the return of Christ. And so when Christ returns, the morning star rises in your hearts. That phrase, the morning star rising in your heart, happens at the return of Christ, points to the fact that at his second coming, he will not only externally transform the universe, but he will internally transform all believers. At that moment, all believers will be made like Christ, meaning we will have perfect and complete knowledge of the scriptures. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Hence, we will have perfect and complete knowledge in our growth 
in godliness. We will no longer need to study the scripture to obey them because the scriptures and their application will be inscribed upon our hearts and minds. Hebrews 10, 16, quoting Jeremiah 31, 33. This is my covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their hearts and on their minds I will write them. See, having underscored the Old Testament's necessity to our growth in godliness, Peter turns his attention to dealing with its origin. See, like today, the Old Testament was under attack in Peter's day. The antinomian Gnostics attacking Peter's readers claimed to have their own holy writings that rivaled what is now known as the Old Testament. And wanting to prevent their heresy from plaguing the saints, Peter addressed the Old Testament's divine origin. He begins by exhorting believers to know this first of all. First of all means before anything else. The verb know, gnosko, the verbal form of gnosis, relates to learning and reasoning the truths of Scripture in a manner that influences and informs our ethics. First of all, this is what you need to know about Scripture. Now, remember, in verse 5, we were to supply our doctrinal foundation with knowledge. We are to continue building upon and adding to the doctrinal foundation that we study and learn from the Scripture. And Peter states that the first piece of information that we need to know and understand is Scripture's origin. Theologically, this is known as bibliology, the doctrine of Scriptures. If you do not have a solid foundation regarding the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of Scripture, friend, you will fall for anything coming down the pike claiming to be biblical. And regarding the Old Testament and therefore Scripture's origin, Peter makes two statements. First, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's inter own interpretation. This statement has caused many issues because of lack of proper interpretation. Peter is not saying that we are unable to interpret or understand the Scriptures. Any believer who understands the rules of biblical hermeneutics and relies on the Holy Spirit to illuminate the meaning of the text can interpret Scripture. The term interpretation means disclosure. Hence, Peter's saying, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private disclosure or revelation, which references back to Ezekiel 13, 2 and 17. Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy, uh, prophesy and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration, Listen to the word of the Lord. Now you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who are prophesying from their own inspiration. Prophesy against them. See, the problem with false teachers is they produce false prophecies from their own inspiration. Paul said, all scripture is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. That word inspired, theonoustos, comes from two Greek terms, theos meaning God, and pneuma meaning breath. The term pneuma can also be translated as spirit. Thus, God breathed out his word through the Holy Spirit. The second truth regarding Scripture's origin, according to Peter, is that no prophecy ever came by the will of man. See, God communicated his words to human authors, who in turn wrote down what was spoken. These men were not supernatural or inspired. Scripture was not the byproduct of their logic or reasoning. Rather, producing the Scriptures on their own, the human authors were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word moved means to be driven or propelled. It's a nautical term that describes a ship being driven by the wind. By the Holy Spirit means that the human authors of Scripture were led, directed, and carried along by the Holy Spirit. We call this moving the superintending or the divine directing of the Holy Spirit. 
And so while the Holy Spirit spoke God's word to human authors, he allowed their personalities and vocabularies to express his words. And since the Holy Spirit superintended the human authorship, God's word was recorded without error in the original autographs. Friend, every one of us has been given two tools for growth and godliness, the Old Testament and the New Testament. These two divine testaments are not myths, fables, legends, or stories. They are the revelation of God and His will. They are the means by which we can know God's purposes and plans. We can trust the Bible because God spoke His word to holy men, guided those holy men in the penning of His word. Therefore, the Old and New Testaments are infallible and inerrant. And as such, they are accurate for belief. They are authoritative for life. And if we would commit ourselves to studying and applying both Testaments, my friend, you will have the tools necessary for growing in godliness. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have given us everything that we need, even the tools, and right here in your word. Father, I confess that we live in a wicked day, even in the church of God, where, where Christians have thrown out three-quarters or two-thirds, however you want to cut it, they have thrown out the greater portion of your scripture. And Father, in doing so, they have butchered the text. I'm reminded of, uh, of the man there in the book of Jeremiah who is cutting out the portions of Scripture that the king didn't like. And that's what the church has done today. They've cut out those portions of Scripture they don't think apply. They've cut out that por those portions of Scripture that they don't think are relevant to them. Or they're, they're, they're too ugly, they're too mean, they're too this or too that. And in doing so, Father, it's left us with not quite a Bible. And it's left us with having to, quote-unquote, interpret the New Testament by our own understanding, according to our own whims, according to our own desires. And, uh, Father, the fact of the matter is you have given us the Old Testament. And all of that is there is for us, for growth in godliness. And so, Father, we need to repent of that. Uh, if any of us, Father, who, uh, who have... Uh, receive the word, have taken it, and just cast aside the Old Testament as well. It's not for me. It's too hard to read. It's too difficult. doesn't apply. Oh, Father, I pray that we would forsake that attitude, that we would confess that attitude, Lord, and that we would embrace the whole of Scripture, all of Scripture, because all of Scripture is profitable. All of Scripture is necessary for teaching, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for reproof, for correction. We need all Scripture so that we can be thoroughly grounded in every good deed. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us a hunger and thirst for your word, both sides, both testaments, the old and the new. We pray in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.